Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 27th, 2015, and my guest is Roger Berkowitz, president and CEO of Legal Seafoods, a group of 34 restaurants and other businesses on the East Coast. Roger, welcome to Econ Talk. Good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Russ. Now, you started working in your family's uh, seafood market as a mm-hmm. 10-year-old boy. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Uh, how did well, you get to you know, the top? You know, this, this is when, uh, you know, parents can be, um, you know, really, uh, really smart. They entice you to come to work because it's, it's fun and you can be with your parents. So essentially, that's what happened. I, I we, you know, growing up, it was fun to come to work on Saturdays or, or um, you know, school vacations, that type of thing. And I'd get up on a milk crate behind the counter, and and uh, I would learn to weigh up fish on a scale. They don't have, they didn't have digital scales then. It was sort of a, almost like a slide rule that you'd, you'd have to learn how to use. And then uh, talk to customers, which was actually great fun. It was a great education. Um, we didn't see it as work when we were doing that, but uh, uh, it, you know, it, it, it taught us an awful lot at an, at an early age. So uh, essentially, and then once in a while, my father would take pity and give me you know, 50 cents or something, uh, you know, uh, as, as, as a little bit of an allowance. But we really never saw work growing up as, as, as work. It was really just a way of, of uh, being with our folks. But at that point, your family had just the fish market or did they also have a restaurant? At that point, it was just the fish market. Yeah. So uh, how you know, did that they, get from a 10-year-old boy chatting with customers and uh, weighing fish to be the CEO of a 34-restaurant uh well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and, and we, you know, historically, you know, let me just give you a little bit of a, a backdrop to what happened. My uh, grandfather had a grocery store in Inman Square, Cambridge, uh, in 1904, and he operated that to the uh, mid 40s. Uh, a lot of competition with the new supermarkets that were coming into town and opening up, and uh, uh, he was really a fanatic about quality uh, quality meats and produce. That was really his hallmark. And uh, uh, he started to struggle against the advent of the AMPs and the stop and shops uh, of the world. And uh, my father and his, and his older brother were asked to leave school and help in the grocery business. And they, they got there and uh, they had a cousin that worked for one of the supermarkets. And the cousin said, hey, if you guys want to compete, you have to have some of the niceties that the uh, supermarkets have. And one of the things they have are fish counters. So my father thought, okay, I'll put a fish counter into the grocery. Well, the problem was the grocery store was only about 2,500 square feet, and there simply wasn't enough room. So um, at, at that point, he ended up leasing the adjacent storefront and opening up a fish market next to it. And so that's how my family sort of evolved from the grocery business into the, uh, yeah, into the retail uh, fish market. And my grandfather uh, eventually retired, and a cousin ran a butcher shop, and then and then and then he retired, and and uh, my folks ended up taking the fish market and expanding into the empty space of the grocery, and that's how we inadvertently got involved in the uh, uh, in the uh, restaurant business. 
we had no background. I mean, we used to uh, go out to eat on Sundays. Uh, let's see, we used to alternate. Every other Sunday, we'd go to IHOP, and then uh, then we'd go to uh, uh, China City, which was a a Chinese restaurant in Brookline, Mass. So that was our cumulative experience in the restaurant business. And how did you get involved in the uh, at the management level? So, so part of it was really working after school, uh, and uh, whether in high school it was uh, you know uh, you know working behind the counter, and then I think I was a junior in high school, and when the when the restaurant first opened, and uh, it was really trial and, and error under fire. Um, you know, we, we didn't really have any background. We just knew certain, you know, you needed to do certain things in order to operate a restaurant. Um, yeah, the good news is that I, I suppose that there weren't a lot of restaurants going on at the, you know, that were around at that time. So, you know, you were sort of forgiven for, uh, for making mistakes. Uh, and, and I, and I think the, you know, the best, you know, it's sort of the best scenario is, and, you know, I like to tell people that, you know, it, it's funny, growing up in that environment, you were, you were allowed to be sort of very entrepreneurial. Um, we didn't have any preconceived notions about what food costs, labor costs, or things should be. Uh, so the good news, bad news is that you made a lot of mistakes, and half the time we didn't know what the heck we were doing. Uh, and, uh, but that sometimes that accretes to sort of leapfrogging you into a better place. So it was really, uh, it was all hands on deck. It was doing jobs that, uh, uh, that needed to get done. And that was sort of the uh, hands on experience. So when you became CEO in 1992, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of, uh, what was the landscape for the restaurant? Was it, how many did you have at that point? Uh, at that point, I believe we had five. And uh, it was my father, my brother, myself, and uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was different. Restaurants were sort of just coming into uh, uh, in, into play. It was it was kind of when I say into play, I mean just sort of there wasn't the thrust of restaurants then that there that there are today. So the restaurants were not as plentiful. Uh, as they were out there, uh, you know, I, I think one of the you know differential things for us, and, and it was kind of interesting for me in particular, uh, is that um, uh, I went back to school. I, I'd been out of uh, school for a good uh, fifteen years or twelve years, and, um, and you know there was a program that uh, was offered at, at uh, Harvard Business School called the Owner President Management Pro uh, Program. And uh, it was for people who had been out of school at least 10 years and trying to figure out how to grow their businesses and how to think about their businesses. And uh, it was from, they, they took approximately 100 people a year from, from, different, from different industries and, and, and different walks of life. And uh, the age groups were between, say, 32 and 60. And I was one of the younger people in the class. This was, uh, I think, 1985. And... Um, and I remember getting in there, and uh, the guy who ran the program was a guy by the name of Marty Marshall, and um, uh, he was a marketing professor, and uh, he was a real curmudgeon. And I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, Russ, the, uh, the movie uh, Paper Chase with the John Huston character. Yeah, I know about it. Okay, so while well, John Huston was a law school professor, he used to torture his students. I mean, and if you didn't come into that class extraordinarily well prepared, you were uh, uh, you you were destroyed literally. Well, Marty was kind of like that in the in the business school uh, uh, 
And uh, there was a lot of people he'd throw bait out to, and of course they'd grab it hook, line, and singer, and he'd kind of slowly uh, reel them in, and then he would surgically cut off their legs in front of the class. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to happen to me. I'm not going to let this happen. So, I'm, so of course, you know, when, when you're in class and you have a particular tough, um, you know, professor or teacher, uh, the thing that you try to do is avoid looking at them, yep. hoping that they won't call on you. So, of course, as luck would have it, they, you know, they rotate the class. And, and, and this program was a program where you lived on campus three weeks a, a year for three successive years. And as luck would have it, um, I was uh, sort of posted to the front row. And uh, Marty's not an idiot. He, he was looking at me, noticed that I'm averting his, his, his look. So he, he comes, stands right in front of me, goes, Berkowitz. And I'm thinking to myself, no, please, please. And he said, what business are you in? So I'm thinking to myself, it's not a trick question, is it? Kind of is, uh, though, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm saying, uh, I, I, I'm in the restaurant business. And he looks at me, goes, oh, you think so, huh? And I'm thinking, I can't believe I blew that answer. And he said, what are you going to do? You're going to do an environmental analysis of your business, and you're going to hand it in next term. Well, an environmental analysis is you take a look at your business, past, present, and future. So I, I did this. I, you know, I, I, I did a, a research paper. I was the only one given this assignment. I, I, I handed it in the next uh, term. Someone typed it for me. It was about 42 pages. And uh, I handed it in. And when I handed it in the first day of class the next, that next term, he didn't even open up. He waved it in front of my face, and he waved it in front of the class. He goes, all right, Berkowitz, what business are you in now? And I said, uh, I'm in the fish business. And he said, good. You did your homework. It was the it was the most single most important lesson I ever learned. So uh, I, I think at that point, what and, and his message to me is, look, yes, you're in the restaurant business, but you're really in the fish business, and you have not appropriately exploited the positive value of of what you know in this segment. And before you go off thinking of Italian restaurants or Chinese restaurants or, or steakhouses or whatever, focus on what you knew, know best and really become the expert in that. And, and again, it, it, it took that banging across the head, the threat, the humiliation, if you will, of going through that exercise that really sort of made me a appreciate but focus me on really what was important so uh let's talk about what it's like being the ceo of a, in the fish business um mm -hmm. is there a typical day and if there's not give me some of the flavor of, a, of some of the days that what's uh, what's it like day to day for you so you know i i don't i don't like routine per se and, and that's actually one of the great things about uh, the restaurant business and uh, as certainly as a subset of that, the, the fish business, because, you know, it's not as predictable. I mean, yes, you know, you get certain trends in terms of how many people are coming in and what the weather may or may not do. Uh, but with fish and, and fresh fish um, in particular, you really don't know what's going to get landed. You don't know uh, how many boats are getting in. You don't know how many people are going to be, might be bidding on what it is that you want to get. So, you know, there are days where, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting, uh, you know, for product 
fighting for the right, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, items on the menu, whether you have a more limited menu, um, you know, what are you going to be doing on pricing? Uh, and then you and then you sort of, you know, factor in what happens in the restaurant business, uh, which, you know, you have human resource issues. Um, you, you know, you, you have uh, real estate issues. Uh, you, you have all kinds of issues sort of hitting you. So, I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I don't know if, if I pride myself, but I, I kind of have a short attention span. So I like the variety of things hitting me, uh, you know, sort of all at once. So there is no typical day. Are there any? There things- is no typical day. There are days that are less aggravating than others. Well, what's on a, on most days, what's at the front of your mind and your experience uh, on the job? So, um, you know, certainly you want to make the next day better than the last day. And what does that mean? Uh, you know, it, it means that at the end of the day, we're really focused on the customer or the guest experience. And, and a very simple philosophy, uh, and, you know, people have different, and, uh, you know, uh, mission statements, if you will. And mine is very simple. It, it's three initials, R-O-G. And it really stands for return of the guest. And what I'm simply trying to do is make sure that we can enhance the overall experience that are going to encourage people to to want to come back again. I mean, in some ways, it's almost like the retail experience I grew up with in the the fish market. We wanted people to come back that next week. And you, you know, and, and in the restaurant business, you know, you've heard the saying, you're only as good as your last meal. And that's a truism. So what is it that we can be working on from a, a hospitality standpoint, from a menu standpoint, um, you know, that, it, that is really going to encourage the guests to want to return? And, you try, and, and, you know, so part of the, what I focus on is where are we not doing as good a job as we can? Where do we have weaknesses and how do you bolster those weaknesses? How do, so you, find it, out, how do you find out what those weaknesses are? Do you use someone hmm. – here's different – is a long question, but yeah. – are you eating in the restaurant? Do you have spies eating in the restaurants? Do you use mm-hmm. technology? And talk about social media where you're getting reviewed and you're getting one star because uh, one of your waiters or waitresses didn't sleep well the night before and the mm-hmm. customer has a bad experience that's not really indicative of the whole, but it's sitting up there on Yelp. And mm-hmm. talk about it's, that uh, whole it, world. Yeah, so it's, so it's a combination of, of all the above. I mean, certainly – um, you know, I, I try to keep enough of a pulse on. They're going in and out of the restaurants where uh, I get a sense, and I, I, I spot check restaurants all the time. Uh, I, so I can get a, you get a sense of the flow. You listen, you, you know, to how people are interacting. You know, you sort of, is there an anxiety level in the air? You look at people's plates. Are they finishing their plates? You know, you go and you watch and see how a place is, uh, uh, you know, how, how clean it is. Are the bathrooms clean? Uh, you know, you try to look at, uh, for the details. But uh, in the old days, I, I think that, yes, we used to hire shoppers, uh, you might have referred to as, as spies, to go in there and what kind of experience that they were, were having. And they did write it up and get back to you. And I think that was the old way of doing it. The, the new way of doing it now uh, is really, and you, you, you mentioned it, social media. Uh, I can't control what people say on social media. Um, uh, and, you know, you, you have people that are, are very skilled 
uh, and, and tactful at writing, and you have people that are not tactful at writing, and you don't necessarily know where they're coming from. Was their uh, fiancé uh, just let go from, from one of our restaurants? Or So you never know, really know the motivation behind it. However, uh, that said, I, I do give, I, I look at social media today as a necessary evil. Uh, and I actually employ a service that picks up uh, everything that's said about us on social media. And I get a report, as my management team does, every day on what was said about us on social media. And so, yes, every so often there may be, you know, that one-star re- you know, review that doesn't seem to have a lot of credibility. But, you know, what if you see a couple of those one-star reviews? Or what if, it, you know, so I look at it as a trend, as an indicator, because those truly are our guests, whether we, you know, like what they say or, or not. So uh, I, I tend to pay attention to those things. Let's talk about the competitive environment. And I, you know, as an economist, I tend to think of competition very, very broadly. And competition for you would include uh, a movie. It would include a home-cooked meal. It would include a restaurant meal that's not seafood. It would obviously include another seafood meal. And then at the sourcing side, obviously, you have competitors, uh, uh, grocery chains and others who are trying to get at the same supply you're getting at. How do you think mm-hmm. about that competitive environment, and uh, how do you try to organize your thinking to deal with it? So, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think of it in a couple of ways. Uh, one, uh, going back to my business, what is my business? My, my business is fish. It's sourcing, handling, and value-adding. So uh, I have to make sure that I'm getting the best product. I put it through an environment. I have a... Um, a processing plant uh, with a laboratory. I test seafood for purity. Uh, I think I'm the only one in the country that will uh, test uh, swordfish and tuna fish from every swordfish and tuna fish for mercury content. Uh, I hold all of our shellfish in quarantine for 24 hours as we run a battery of tests. Uh, we test products for uh, listeria. So, in other words, when it comes to the product, my, my point of differentiation is, A, I try to source the best, but I also try to handle it in, in, in such a way uh, that, that others can't. Now, the other thing is seafood is no longer um, a commodity. It, it's really a specialty item, and it's, it, not everyone has access to it. And so I, I try to make sure that out of that product, we are sourcing it at the very highest level. And, and so I look at it that way. Now, if people, but you see, because I look at it as we're in the fish business, I, I may be in the restaurant business, but I'm also starting to look more and more at, at supermarkets. Uh, as, as a, as with putting value-added product under our label, whether it be chowder or whether it be shrimp, because look, under understanding that there are going to be people that say, you know what, we don't want uh, a restaurant experience tonight. Either it's uh, not convenient, or it's or it's too expensive, or or something. And uh, maybe we'll have a near restaurant experience at home. And if I can get this product in the supermarket, um, you know, and then, you know, uh, you know, marry that with a, with a bottle of wine, uh, I'm going to have a near restaurant experience. So I, I fully acknowledge that that is a, uh, uh, that is a possibility and, and that's a channel that we have to be in as well. What do you know about seafood or the restaurant business today that you did not know when you were uh, first on this job, 
and how what role does technology play in that transformation? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I've always been focused on quality assurance. So uh, I think it's certainly become more um, uh, more important today than ever before. Um, you know, sustainability uh, as a concept uh, has become more important, particularly to the, um, you know, the growing segment of millennials uh, that really want to know uh, what their product uh, you know, where their product is coming from, who is harvesting it, uh, in what manner it's been harvested. And I, and I, and I think that's totally appropriate. So I think people are wanting more information today than ever before. And, uh, I think that, uh, you know, there are, you know, whether it's communications or, or traceability, uh, there were, there were certainly ways that we employ to give people as much information as, as they want about a given product because, yeah, you know, if, if we're able to do that, it, under, it underscores what we're about to begin with. Uh, let's talk about sustainability. Uh, the Monterey Aquarium has uh, what it calls a seafood watch, mm-hmm. and it's got guides that you can download. I downloaded Massachusetts uh, <laughs> for fun before this conversation, uh-huh. and – there's some uh, suggested uh, fish that you should order. There's some that are okay, and there's some that you should avoid, meaning they suggest uh, you should not order these because they're currently uh, – their stocks are in danger or overfished, and uh, a prudent and um, sensitive customer should order something else. Uh, you've been critical of their uh, list. Why? Well, because I, I, I think that um – they, they, you know, it's interesting. I think that their guide has been, uh, you know, helpful to a lot of people. They certainly see that guide as a source of income, uh, you know, to the, to the festival. I mean, not the festival, the the aquarium. Uh, but I don't think uh, they really. I, I think they paint a broad brush, and inadvertently, in the past, they have done harm. I'll give an example. I was on a uh, panel uh, at the Culinary Institute of America, and there was a guy on there. Uh, who was representing uh, the chef's collaborative. And he made a statement. Now, I, I, again, I haven't, you know, uh, taken a look at what's on the uh, uh, on the pamphlet these, uh, today, but he made a statement that you should not be eating cod or haddock from the North Atlantic. And I said, why would you ever make that statement? And he whipped out his card because it says it right here. And I said, well, you know, I may... Uh, this it's is based what- on science. Well, 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 and actually, and that's actually a subject I I really want to cover in a little bit more depth because it's not based on the best available science. And I will get back to that in a moment. But NOAA very conservatively comes up with a quota system in terms of what they will allow uh, to be landed in terms of, of stocks. And, and I may not agree with the amount that they allow, because I, I, to some degree, I think sometimes they they are they're a little draconian in terms of what they will allow in terms of of, of haddock and cod stocks, as an example. Uh, but whatever is landed is deemed sustainable, and so for someone to come up or, or or to promote something that says in a pamphlet you shouldn't eat it is doing irreparable harm to the infrastructure of an industry. Now again. Maybe they they could be you know harvesting a lot more than is allowed, but whatever is harvested is deemed sustainable. And I think that was the wrong message to put out there that people should avoid that because 
it really hurt the fishermen. It, 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 it didn't mean that the fishermen were going to catch, catch less of that product. Noah had already established how much of that product that they were going to be able to have. But to say whatever's landed is not sustainable, I think that that's a mistake. And I think that did, is, it continues to do harm to the industry. So help me out here because um, this is the first I've heard of this and maybe uh, some of Maybe many of our listeners are in the same boat, so to speak, as it were. Sorry about that. But NOAA is um, the National Oceanographic uh, Agency? Yes, and they are in charge of national marine fisheries. And under the Magnuson Act, um, they are chartered to, to employ best available science for doing their stock assessments. Okay. So they have been using a methodology... It was developed many, many years ago, and it involves a boat going back and forth over an area, quite like a lawnmower on an area of lawn, and gathering information. And then interpreting that information as to what the, uh, the quota will be for a year. They actually don't, they should be using it every year, if they, you know, any, but they use it, it's, it's sort of an every other year kind of scenario. And oftentimes when they do this stock assessment, um, they, at the 11th hour, they'll tell the fishermen, as they did two years ago, oh, you know, the, the stocks don't seem to be rebounding according to this data, and therefore you must cut back 77% of what you're currently harvesting. And, and so just think of your, regardless of the business you're in, if I, if I, I told you, right, Rush, whatever you're doing, you've got to cut back on it 77%. That, that in and itself is not sustainable. So and that's sort of what happens to the fishing industry. And for every job, by the way, for every um, job on a fishing boat, there are seven jobs that sort of go back in the infrastructure of that industry. So it, it, it has a domino effect when something negative occurs. Now, all that said, we're all in favor of sustainability. And I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be a scientist, but I will tell you a story that took place uh, seven years ago. Um, the, um, the president of Northeastern University, Joseph Ahun, uh, invited me out to take a look at their Marine Science Center, which was near uh, Nahant, Massachusetts. And uh, I went out there, and it was a fascinating uh, place to visit. Lots of research scientists out there. And um, there was a husband and wife team that was on a grant uh, uh, from Homeland Security. And they were using sonar to determine, uh, help determine uh, if if there were any enemy vessels that could potentially encroach on our our, uh, coastline. And so I kind of naively said, gee, uh, can the sonar be utilized in any fashion uh, to help do stock assessments? And they kind of looked at each other and laughed, and they said, here, take a look at this, this picture or mapping that we did. We did this in an area where, they, where Noah said there really wasn't very much herring. But what they missed and it was an area, a body of herring the size of Manhattan. And what sonar allows thing, people to do is to do 120 kilometer radius uh, in four different dimensions and then and can check the different species because of, of it measures the air in the lung capacity of the various species. And it can do it in 70 seconds. So I said, well, gee, why, why aren't we using this? 
and and they just shrugged. So I, I ended up bringing in someone who was a state rep uh, representative from Gloucester, Mass, to take a look at it. And within short order, um, we had uh, our attorney general. Uh, we had uh, uh, Congressman uh, Barney Frank. Uh, we had uh, uh, Senator John, who at the t Senator at the time, John Kerry, and all of his people. We got the, the entire Massachusetts delegation on board, saying we've got to use this kind of uh, technology to do our stock assessments because we're, 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 it's a disservice. To to the to the fishing industry not to have this information and frankly I don't know if there's more fish or if there's less fish but I really want to know how much fish that's really what needs to be done and and one of the most conservative groups up here when I say conservative it was an environmental group it still is called the uh, uh, the Conservation Law Foundation they absolutely agreed with me on this and they said we do need best available science it's not getting used and to date. Um, it, it, it hasn't been done. The, uh, the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Deval Patrick, had put aside a million and a half dollars to use this as a as a test. And uh, the federal government will not allow it to go through at this point because uh, we all believe, uh, everyone believes, it's because they don't want their previous results called into question. Yeah, so this is really, it is it is very awkward. However, we are, we are making progress. Uh, uh, Secretary Kerry did uh, convene a conference on oceans uh, in this this past year, and uh, one in his opening address, because I was I was fortunate enough to be invited. In his opening address, he said, "We need best available science," and I think really that has to be the mantra. Again, I don't know if there's more fish or less fish, but I do know we need accurate. Um, assessments on terms of what's out there. So this is a classic example in economics of the potential uh, tragedy of the commons, that no one owns the oceans. There can be a tendency to overfish them because if you throw yes. a fish back that's too small, uh, you have very lo little chance of catching it again. Uh, it'll go to one of your competitors or you won't catch it, and therefore you have an mm -hmm. incentive to keep a small fish. And as a result, a lot too many fish get caught, and the overall health of the ecosystem can go down. Now, historically, as we've talked about on the program before, many times uh, people who in the fishing industry uh, or certainly in the lobster industry where, where lobsters are very easily located, they're very aware of this and they work hard to set up a set of informal rules. But what we're saying is that the government has set up formal rules to try to restrain the incentives that might exist when there's uh, pro public property rather than private property. Obviously, if you owned the ocean, you would want it to be sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. But I will let you know that the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch says you should, right now, at least on their website, you should avoid Atlantic cod in the Canadian or U.S. Uh, sourcing or haddock from um, the Gulf of Maine, which you would, I think, reference before, as well as halibut. Uh, there's a, The list goes on. But you're saying that because the, in theory, NOAA, uh, sets quotas that that make those stocks uh, remain healthy. That that's not a recommendation that people should worry about. I, I I I think it's irresponsible because it's based on faulty data, uh, and and a and b what Noah deems again. I may I may disagree with the uh, uh, with the quota that that Noah allows, but whatever is landed is deemed sustainable. And whether Monterey endorses that or not, it's still going to get consumed. Now, I think there are other issues out there, like global warming, as an example, that have had 
you know, some kind of, um, you know, uh, it, that have forced certain species to go more northward. As an example, um, haddock and cod is not as plentiful as it once was uh, in our in, in the New England waters. Um, and but the water temperature has also risen three or four degrees. So it really has nothing to do with overfishing. That fish actually is swimming north and they are having record catches uh, right now in Iceland and Norway, where the waters are colder. And by the way, they use better available science, including sonar. Well, let's, uh, other than just mentioning that I, I always wonder whether NOAA has the right incentives to pick the right level of sustainability. Obviously, they're not a purely scientific organization. They may be susceptible to the fishing lobby, your interest, my interest, right? It's a complicated. <laughs> I, 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 I tend to think that they're not, you know, that they're not influenced by the fishing lobby. Okay, well, that's, that's opinion. <laughs> okay, it's, it could be good to know. Um, I mean, it could be good. That could be good news. Um, let's let's talk about a particular fish. What is what is your biggest selling fish? If you can tell us that. Oh gosh! Well, it's um, I, I think if in aggregate, actually, if you in aggregate, given the number of different dishes that it, it appears on, probably shrimp. So uh, I consider I'm, not, I'm an actual fish fish, but we'll take shrimp. But mm -hmm. in, in terms of fish fish, would it be cod? And, uh, cod is popular. So cod is popular, and I, and I and I and I buy a uh, a fair amount of uh, a cod from uh, from Iceland. So let's take those two examples. You you meant you alluded to it earlier. You said you know you're in, you have to make sure you you buy the right amount. Uh, I mean mm -hmm. that you can get access to it to to fill mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. to make your menu work. How mm -hmm. do you do that? Uh, have you thought about having your own fleet? You said you're in the fish business. You you could yeah. vertically yeah. integrate. Yeah, I, I almost put out a boat once. And I think it would have been a huge, huge mistake because uh, catching fish different business. Uh, and selling fish are two different uh, things. So it, although I might have been deluded at one point to thinking vertical integration was the way to go, that would have been a disaster uh, as far as I'm uh, – But what I'm thinking about is that if, if a, a customer uh, decides that, that to eat cod or shrimp tonight, the customer can – go down to the local grocery or there's sometimes they can go to the it's romantic and fun to go to the fish market where you can see the boats come in but mm -hmm. you're not doing that or are you what's the how does the market work at your level it's obviously not the same as as when I go in and buy a pound of fish at the local fish market you're buying enormous quantities and I assume you're bidding with other large consumers of of, of cottage well, shrimp. Well, I might be, I might be, um, you know, my competition in that regard might be wholesalers, who are then selling to to um, you know other restaurants and or markets. Smaller restaurants, presumably individual. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes. You know, so so they they are the middleman, if you will. So I tr I try to go as direct as I can, uh, and by the way, um, the higher quality product does not come um, at, at a discount. You know, oftentimes I really have to pay uh, much more to get the best quality. So what's the mechanism? So Are you doing this? You're not doing this every day. Oh yeah, you? I mean, as boats come in, yes, I mean, it's a fresh product. 
You know, we don't have any long term contracts or relationships. You know, you know, it's interesting. The West West Coast operates a little bit differently than the East Coast. The East Coast uh, is is really, in some ways, not as sophisticated as the West Coast. In that, uh, no, it's more of a daily auction that takes place on the uh, on the East Coast. But you're going to make sure you get a minimum amount of everything on your menu. The last thing you want to well, no, sometimes some sometimes I have to go without. You know, if I don't see if if I can't buy quality whatever at a, at a you know Graysol, uh, then then it's not on the menu. And do you tell the customer that, or is yep, you just reprint absolutely. the menu every day? Ab- <laughs> absolutely, it wasn't available today, or I didn't like the quality today. Uh, no, so absolutely, we'll pull the trigger on. And the and the other thing is, I think that you know uh, it would be good for the the listeners to know is that. A true fishermen and people like ourselves that are in the fish business are, are conservation-minded um, at, at our very core. And we have no incentive nor interest to to catch the last fish. Yeah, that'd be bad for you. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be bad. Good today, and, and so, bad tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> it, absolutely. And so, so we look for sustainability as well. And true fishermen have always been conservationists in that regard. So I, I think that... Uh, yeah, look, there, there there were scenarios when, you know, going back into the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, you know, when the 200-mile um, uh, uh, limit went into play and the U.S. government, uh, you know, in, I don't know whether, I mean, it, it was just sort of bad strategy. They tried to incentivize uh, the U.S. industry with all kinds of tax incentives and whatnot, and, and, and the U.S. fleet grew threefold in a very short period of time before anyone really took the time to monitor really what was being taken and how it was being taken. So let's talk about technology on the fishing boat for a minute. I'm going to now uh, let our listeners know that it, it turns out that you and I went to the same uh, junior high and high school, uh, which um, – I don't know why I like that, but I do. It's interesting <laughs> how human beings like to bond over meaningless things. Uh, and we're two oh, no, years- Miss Kinnean wasn't meaningless. No, Miss Kinnean was not meaningless. We both had an extraordinary eighth grade teacher, Miss Kinnean, uh, who I've mentioned, I think, before on this program. Um, but when I was a little boy, uh, my dad and I would, would drive to, to Gloucester, and we would rent a large rowboat, maybe a mm-hmm. 10-foot, 12-foot rowboat. We'd row for about an hour. With our friend Lenny out into the outside, out, way out, it seemed like to me, where you could barely see the town in the distance that you'd left behind. And we'd mm-hmm. catch flounder for a few hours, and we'd toss mm-hmm. him in the bottom of the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd get home, we'd toss the flounder into the trunk of the car, and then my dad would clean him in the driveway when we got home. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, the fishing biz, that was the technology of keeping things fresh maybe you had a cooler along the way in that i'm sure we did at some point. i'm sure there ice played a role at some point in that story but yeah. in your business at the level that you're talking about with the emphasis you have on freshness and safety and and uh safety in particular how has that world changed say since 1992 or going back a little farther a little further when you were younger and weren't ceo in that in your business i assume there's been something of a revolution in how fish are preserved uh, once they leave the water and get on the boat mm-hmm. and get into your restaurant's cooler. How do, what's changed? Well, well, certainly people have gotten more sophisticated in terms of how they handle product because they figured out from an economic standpoint that they're going to be paid more money for a better product. And so that has, that has sunk in. 
So to the extent that it, we know who's catching them, we know what, what boats go out there. We know who, who got the fish immediately and ice in the fish immediately. We know those boats. We pay more for them. We, 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 those are the boats we want, and we pay a, a premium to get that fish. Uh, we know the draggers out there in terms of uh, who's hiring and uh, no, it's hiring, who, who's dragging in a sustainable manner. And those are, that's the fish that we want because they take care of their fish in, in, you know, in a better way. So, uh, I think that, that more and more people are figuring that out. More and more fishermen are figuring that out that, uh, people will pay more money for better fish. So, so that's, you know, kind of, it's, it's sort of the in, incentive. We, we certainly would never do business with someone that, that wasn't taking care of that product properly. Uh, you know, wasn't harvesting it, you know, properly, wasn't icing it in right away. Uh, and, and for us, it's as soon as it comes out of the water, it has to go into cold temperatures. It has to be transported by truck in a cold environment. And our plant uh, is kept temperature control. So it never really comes out uh, of temperature until it goes on the fire. In fact, what we do, we have, we have a, our, our fish processing uh, plant uh, in Boston, in South Boston. Um, we we fillet every fish and portion every fish in a temperature controlled environment because we don't want it going to to a hot kitchen where inadvertently it could be left out and all of a sudden you have a great piece of fish that all of a sudden doesn't taste that good anymore or or has a bit of age to it. So two questions. Uh, you're saying that it's the, is that done by hand that portioning or is it done by machine? So, so machines are getting are, are becoming more prevalent. They're they're prevalent in the skinning. So you mentioned flounder. So flounder and gray sole, as an example, would be skinned by a machine because it's simply faster and it does a better job. Um, we still fillet our fish. We, we fillet our haddock and cod by hand. Uh, we use a lot of salmon. Uh, we have. We just brought in a, a machine that will actually fillet uh, uh, salmon, you know, from from a whole state. Um, so it's easy to do. It's easy for a machine to be in a cold environment, but the people who are doing it by hand, you're saying, are doing it in cold temperatures. No, they, that's in the cold environment as well. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. So that they're yeah. they're actually they're working in a refrigerator, the equivalent of a refrigerator. Uh, yes. What about the freezing technology? My impression is is that. Some boats, I don't know if it's Atlantic, it's Pacific, you hear about sushi all the time because mm -hmm. they're always worried mm -hmm. about supply of a certain, mm -hmm. say, type of tuna. Uh, they're, quote, flash freezing it. Is that, mm -hmm. is that common? Is it universal? What does that mean and what's the difference? Is there any difference it, between it, it, my, my freezer and that? Yeah, yes, there is because uh, commercial freezers, uh, which might take the form of nitrogen – uh, gets the fi the fish very very cold, and if you n use nitrogen as an example, uh, it get, it 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 brings the fish down to 20, 30, 40 below zero, and it it does minimal damage to the cell structure. Uh, whereas you know the old fashioned way of freezing a fish uh, might be such that uh, the fish would absorb uh, uh, too much moisture. And, and that was a sort of, you know, in people's idea of, oh, well, this tastes frozen. Um, a, a fish uh, that has been put into nitrogen uh, would be very, very difficult 
unless you were an expert uh, and doing a side-by-side -side to tell whether uh, a tuna, as an example, uh, raw tuna that you'd get in, um, in Japan had been uh, frozen or not. Actually, most of the tuna in Japan has been frozen. And is, is every high-quality fishing boat doing that when they, with their catch, or are they just keeping it cold? Uh, t uh, tuna boats, yes, I believe there are, because the majority of the tuna actually uh, is shipped to Japan. So and I would so say far, the majority of the tuna boats are. And the, the issue there is it just it's such a long trip, it's, you, you have to freeze it, essentially? Uh, yes. I mean, sometimes it's flown in fresh. Uh, you know, I've been to the Chichiji market in, in Tokyo. Uh, I, I I don't think I saw any fresh fish when I was there. I saw lots and lots and lots of, of nitrogen frozen uh, tuna. So you have, I think, uh, you have a lot of restaurants in Massachusetts, but you have one in Rhode Island. You have one in Washington, D.C. You have one in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you source that Atlanta, Georgia one? Uh, uh, we, 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 we fly fish uh, uh, we fly fish in. And and, what, is that, uh, what does that mean? You fly fish. Uh, I know what it literally means. They're on an airplane, but are they going yeah. cargo? Or are they? Do you have your own plane? How do you do that? Yeah, no, no, no. It's uh, you know, it's cargo. Uh, Delta Airlines. Uh, you know, we we pack. Uh, you know, I, I, we, there's a particular. You know, you can we can do quality control uh, when we oversee the process from the whole fish to the uh, filleting to the portioning of it. Uh, and then we pack it ourselves and send it off. So that uh, uh, from a quality assurance perspective, uh, you know, we, we don't see a better way of doing that. So let's talk uh, about portion size because that fascinates me. Uh, most people, there's a little bit of a pushback lately, but uh, restaurants in general, have portions have gotten larger. Uh, food has gotten cheaper. It's gotten uh, – restaurants are better run. you got better control of your inventory. You can still make a profit at a lower price. Competition's forcing that price down. It forces portions to be uh, healthy in terms of size, not necessarily healthy in terms of, of health, but meaning large. Uh, and uh, how has that changed in your 23 years so as it's CEO? Kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. And how do you decide what portion to serve? That's the other. One. Uh, it, 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 you know, part of it is, and I'll tell you a little bit of a story. I think aging boomers and uh, in uh, are one group that have always been used to seeing larger sizes. And uh, gosh, about seven years ago, uh, you know, what, what I what I try to do uh, uh, in the course of um, you know running our our operation is that I usually uh, on a quarterly basis take. Um, uh, someone from the front of the house, someone from the back of the house. Uh, it can be a, a waitstaff person, a host person, a bartender. It can be a cook, uh, and uh, but no, but not management. Um, and uh, and so I, I usually take two people from every restaurant uh, to get their perspective, because oftentimes these are people closest to the guest uh, that really uh, is never asked questions by uh, by management. They have a lot to say in terms of what they observe, uh, observe and what they can add to the conversation. And I've used them uh, in a variety of ways for a number of different uh, uh, strategy sessions I've had. But I was putting together a restaurant. I had a, an idea for a new restaurant concept. It was called the Legal Test Kitchen. And uh, it was a smaller restaurant, and I really wanted to target millennials, um, uh, you know, the 20 and 30 year olds, um, you know, the sort of the non-traditional customer. 
And I remember, you know, and, you know, I had this group and, you know, sometimes I'll lead them by saying, and, um, you know, we want a restaurant with big portions and they're, sh they're looking at me like I had two heads. And, and I said, what, what do you, what do you mean? You, you want big portions, don't you? I mean, and they're saying, no, what, what they were actually asking, this was seven years ago. They said, you know, we, we really want smaller portions. We want more variety of taste. We want to share. We're not looking for big portions and more tapas style, if you will. And it's sort of like a great aha moment went off in my head because, you know, I mean, you know, aging boomers, you know, today grew up in a different set of circumstances and their, their parents were motivated by different things. And it was always about how big a portion of meat you got or how big a portion of this that you got. And, and, and today, I, I think that the millennials today, as an example, and maybe the Gen Xers and Yers, and certainly the seniors are more conscious about what they're putting into their body and they're looking for a higher quality but it's really not about portion size and it's really not about you know oh, how much can i eat in fact if, the, if if what i'm seeing more of today uh in the restaurant business in general is that if they can't finish it they want to take it home so i i see a movement today on more healthful portions because really if you look at some of the the healthiest of uh uh, of populations, and, and we can take a look at the Asian population uh, in Japan, uh, you know, and, and going back to the 50s, 60s, and, and, and 70s, it was always about an appropriate amount of protein, not too much protein, but coupled with the right amount of carbohydrates and the right amount of fat, more in balance. And I think that we see a more intelligent eater out there today, um, you know, than someone simply looking at, at the most amount of, of, of protein or the most amount of ounces out there. So how do you manage that? Uh, how do you play with that? How do you discover? I mean, that, like you said, that was a revelation. Surely it was a, it's mm -hmm. been a surprise for anybody in the restaurant business that people don't want bigger and bigger portions. Obviously, they're restaurants that specialize mm -hmm. in that, but in large portions. But in your niche, that's not necessarily what people want. When you discover that, how do you adjust? Is it trial and error? Do you have um, do you go back to those those servers and ask them how much people are leaving on the plate? How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean it's sort of a combination, but you know, plus the fact, you know, you know part of you know, I, I, I think that you know, restaurateurs, uh, uh, you know, have a, sort of an inherent responsibility. Um, you know, to sort of get it right. And what is helpful? Um, you know, a, a, a number of years ago, um, you, you, uh, you remember the, uh, the trans fat, uh, yeah. well, I mean, trans fat, sorry. Still going. So, <laughs> so, so it's, still, it's still going, but I, I thought this is a true story. So about 15 years ago, I was invited to sit on a round table at the Harvard School of Public Health. And the guy who was leading that was a guy by the name of Walter Willett, who was the chairman of the Department of Nutrition. And uh, so this is, we it was maybe like a six of us, and and Walter went around the table asking each of us, um, you know, if we had trans fats, and and he asked me if my cooking oil was trans fat free, and so I'm looking at it. I never heard of a trans fat before, and I and I'm thinking, gee, I, I I think it's trans fat free, but you know, how would I know? And he said, well, you know, you got to go back and you look at uh, the label, and does it say hydrogenated on it? And or partially hydrogenated. And I, I said, okay. So, you know, sure enough, I went back and it was partially hydrogenated. 
And I thought I was using, you know, pure vegetable oil kosher that I changed out every day. And, 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 and then, you know, Walter proceeded to give me an education on trans fats and the dangers of trans fats. So, you know, I, I, I really went back and, you know, I, we were, I believe, the first um, uh, group of restaurants to get trans fats out of, out of, the, uh, out of our menus. And I, I tell you, it was, it was an arduous task because, you know, I, I had a difficult time convincing uh, the Nabiscos of the world that it shouldn't be in their oyster cracker, as an example, uh, and, and, and whatnot. But uh, long story short, we, we got it out. We got the oil out, and the food actually tasted better because, you know, trans fats is sort of, uh, it's like a preservative that doesn't allow the true flavors to come through anyway. So, so I, I think what, what I try to do is, is really, be attuned to what is the best nutrition out there because I think that we as restaurateurs or uh, you know have a responsibility um, to the public to, to, to do it right and if I'm in the business of what I believe is selling the healthiest of proteins then I really want to make sure that I'm doing it uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a thoughtful manner and so am I, you know, what, what are the best legumes I should be using? You know, what are the best ingredients that I, sh- that I should be using out there? Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, yes, I want them to, you know, I want our guests to have a great experience, but I really think that they should have, a, if it, it can be tasty, but it should be a helpful one as well. Well, a long time ago, certainly when your parents got started, uh, seafood as a Source of protein was seen very differently than it is now. There's a lot more, I think, interest in seafood, certainly yes. in um, omega three and other possible improving health improving aspects of, of fish. Uh, how has that changed in terms of the the, the brand of, of what you're trying to do? Obviously, you've been selling fish for a long time. Yeah, I uh, mean, so it's always been about quality assurance. Uh, you know, uh, you know, certainly. Uh, it would be about you know making sure we got the you know the right quality. So that was always inherent in our in 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 our proposition. Frankly, we were just lucky that it turned out to be the healthiest of all proteins. Sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, but uh, but how but, has that changed but, your life in terms of your business by because of that change in perception? Well, I, I think that uh, you know it, you know people who want to eat healthier and eat smarter. Um, you know, have uh, focused more on seafood, less, you know, less on, on, on fatty proteins, uh, you know, that um, are not as healthy for you. I mean, uh, omega-3s, uh, you know, uh, in terms of being a benefit uh, to help combating uh, 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 cholesterol and then in turn to, uh, uh, you know, cardiac disease, I, I, you know, I think has been a huge boom. And I think that uh, uh, people who, you know, live to be healthy and want to be healthy migrate to the uh, healthier protein. So, uh, I, you know, certainly there is a tendency, um, you know, for people who want to, uh, you know, want a more healthful diet to go in that direction. How much harder is it to run 34 restaurants than 17? And how much harder would it be to run 68? <laughs> hmm. uh, good question. Um, it, it certainly, there were certain levels and thresholds uh, where it becomes exponentially more difficult, um, whether it be in training, uh, whether it be in distribution. Uh, so, you know, there are at, at different thresholds when um, – 
So I'd, I'd say certainly running 34 is more difficult. It requires uh, more expertise. It requires a disproportionately uh, more amount of training. Um, uh, but it's, um, uh, and it requires, you know, how do you think about it? I mean, you know, so I, I look at business and business models as a, um, uh, as an evolution. I, I think that uh, one of the business models in restaurants uh, used to be that bigger is better in terms of size. That is not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, yes, you know, given the number of restaurants that, uh, you know, the increase in the number of restaurants. But I think that uh, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, smaller footprints can be better. Doing fewer things uh, better uh, could, is, is not necessarily a bad philosophy. So I, I think over time things change in terms of what the model looks like. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, more in, in terms of numbers, um, you know, is, uh, you know is, is more of a challenge than fewer. How has your training process changed over the 23-year tenure? Uh, is it the same? Or obviously it's more. There are more people being trained. There are more locations to yeah. train them for. But yes. does the process itself, have you changed it radically a little bit? Or is it pretty much the same? Uh, you know, we, we, we keep redressing it in terms of how can we be more effective at it. You know, people learn differently. I, I, there's probably a, a little bit more uh, online e-learning today than there was before. Um, uh, there's more uh, hands-on training, I think, today uh, than there was before. Um, so I, I think that there is a, a, an acknowledgement of one of the things that we've learned that people learn differently and that one size doesn't necessarily fit all. You know, whether it be, you know, certainly there are, you know, whether it's high school or junior high school or, uh, you know, that there are um, different tracks that people can take uh, to enhance their ability to learn. You don't like it when people call your business, uh, your group of restaurants a chain. And I was very careful in my introduction to call it a group <laughs> of restaurants because I'd seen online you. that you don't like it. But uh Obviously, there are certain things that your restaurants have in common, and there are certain yeah. things I suppose are different. So if I were to walk into the Atlanta or the uh, Washington, D.C. or the Boston location, what mm -hmm. would be the same and what would be different? Well, I, I think you'd hopefully get a feel of a um – of, of a common DNA, if you will. I think in the past, uh, I was more focused on producing identical twins, and, and today it's more uh, cousins, if you will. Uh, the DNA has to be the same, but the menus uh, can be different. I mean, they can have a, a you know, certainly, uh, you know, the they all have to have, you know, high-quality seafood. But we have uh, restaurants now called uh, uh, the Sea Bar the letter C in the word bar, LX, Legal Crossing, uh, the LTK, the Legal Test Kitchen, Legal Harborside. So, I, again, what we're trying to do is, you know, I, again, we're a group of restaurants, part of the same family, but not necessarily, um, you know, uh, you know, the uh, identical twins. Uh, I, I, so, and, and, and the reason, I mean, the, it's interesting because, you know, when I was thinking about this, it bothered me for a long time. When people use the word chain in conjunction of, of restaurants, 
uh, it's never necessarily used uh, as a, a flattering comment. I mean, you know, when you think of change, you think of uh, things that might be dummy down or cookie cutter, uh, uh, you know, devoid of, of character. And, and I'm thinking th those are not, you know, traits that, that represent us. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, say something and say, wait a minute, we're an anomaly. Uh, you know, yes, we, we do share a, a, a common thread. So, you know, again, different looks, different feels, different size. Um, you know, some may focus, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a look of a menu uh, or, or, you know, let's say in the Metro Washington area, whether it's DC or Virginia, you know, it, there might be more crab items on there. So we would, you know, uh, you know tend to pay more attention to different uh, characters of the area we were in. I'm going to ask it a weird way. Uh, there are some dishes that are the exact same dish on the menu in multiple restaurants, right? And yes. of course, there's in a in a fast food chain, which is I think part of the derogatory nature of the the word. Uh, it tastes the same everywhere, and it's not so mm -hmm. great, but it's never awful, and that's it's reliable. That's generally what chains sell. They sell reliability. You, I assume, we're also trying to sell reliability, but but at a different quality space. So could you tell the difference between those dishes uh, if it's the same menu item in, in different restaurants? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, sometimes the, you know, the preparation is a little bit different. Sometimes the plating of that dish is a little bit different. Um, what I'm looking for, and maybe I'll, I'll use a different adjective, I'll use consistency. I want the consistency of flavors and quality. There, that that that's what I'm I'm sort of looking for. So if the plating looks a little different, or it's 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 a it comes out a little different, as long as the quality and consistency of the product is there, then I'm then I'm pleased. So let me close with a with a related question, which is, I always find it amusing when people say to me, "Oh, so and so is a great cook; she should start a restaurant." And I'm always thinking, <laughs> being a good cook is such a small part. Of running a restaurant, it's it's good to have good food. It's good. It's necessary, yeah. but it's so yeah. not sufficient because there's so many other aspects. And you mentioned some of them: the human resources part, inventory control, pricing, design of the menu, the the amb ambiance of the restaurant itself. There's a thousand aspects to running a successful restaurant. How much yeah. of your time as CEO gets spent on food? That is, do you ever are you tasting? A new dish? Does it get up to your level, or is it is that delegated? Uh, you've obviously you spend time on the quality of the of the dining experience. You've already talked about that, but there's so mm -hmm. many other aspects to the business. There's regulatory stuff we haven't talked about, except mm -hmm. the indirect mm -hmm. part from Noah. How much are you in the food business as opposed to the restaurant slash fish business? How much are you in the eating and right. tasting and dining part? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking that question, because at the end of the day, if it doesn't taste good or if it's something I'm not proud of having on the menu, uh, then we have a problem. So uh, I am out constantly tasting. I'm out constantly working with our chefs, uh, you know, testing product. If I see something in, in someone else's restaurant that's interesting, I'm going to I'm going to have our guys check it out immediately and say, hey, can we we this is something we should be doing, perhaps with our own twist on it. So, you know, it, 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 it really, at the end of the day, it really does come down to, does it taste good? Is this a dish that I want to return over? And yes, certainly that is enhanced, um, you know, by the hospitality around it. Um, but, but, but the product has to be there 
number one. It's not just the sourcing of the product, it's how we execute it. So uh, yes, I am very, very mindful of, of how things have to taste. And is this a dish that I would return for uh, again and again, or is something that just, eh, if it's if it's good but not great, then let's not go through the bother of doing it. My guest today has been Roger Berkowitz, uh, President and CEO of Legal Seafoods. Roger, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My, my pleasure, Russ. It was great to be here. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.